As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, then please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. But now for today's show. I am so excited today to be joined by the wonderful Dr. Amy Orr-Ewing, an international author and speaker and theologian. And Amy has written numerous books, including Where is God in All the Suffering? Why Trust the Bible? And most recently, this wonderful, wonderful Advent book, Mary's Voice. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Ruth. It's wonderful to to be on. Thank you. Amy, I can't wait to hear about this book. But I guess before we sort of dive into Mary's life, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own story. I mean, what was your experience of God growing up? Yeah, so um, I was born in a family where neither of my parents had faith. And my mum had kind of gone to boarding school and, you know, school chapel but had basically rejected Christianity. She described it as an inoculation, like a vaccine against the real thing later. You know, we have a little <laughs> bit of the poison and it, it it sort of protects you for life. Um, and, and my dad had um, been born in Eastern Europe um, and after the Second World War, uh, Russian occupation or Soviet occupation of where he was living in his father a scientist and definite atheist had been able to make contact with the British and they kind of escaped from Eastern Europe it's it's quite a, a dramatic but also traumatic story and arrived in Britain my dad as a young child um not really speaking English you know after after the second world war so grew up um in a home where it was forbidden to mention God or or read the Bible. And my dad went on to have an um, academic career as well. And only really when he was in his 30s did he have an encounter with, with Jesus. And two things happened. One is that a friend invited him at the university where he worked to come and listen to a speaker who was from outside. And the speaker was talking about evidence for the resurrection and saying the only reason you should be a Christian is that it's true my dad was like no no that's a category mistake you're putting 
truth and religion together they don't belong together you know religion's about sort of wish fulfillment or family tradition or superstition or whatever and you know certainly not about the category of truth but that that kind of troubled him and then a little while later he had actually an extraordinary vision of of Jesus and encountered Christ very profoundly and personally so my mum became a Christian about six months later. She had a real intellectual struggle with with um, with faith and a lot of arguments. Um, and as a result of them finding or encountering Jesus, I think my sister and I saw a really dramatic change in them. And my dad ended up becoming um, involved in Christian ministry, gave up his, his job um, lecturing in university and ended up planting churches. So in one sense, I grew up in a really strong Christian home, (laughs) but it was as a result of a profound encounter with God, which just turned our whole family upside down. And And so I grew up in a context as well where my parents both really valued the intellectual life and encouraged myself and my sister to ask questions and to, you know, come to our own decision about faith. And so although I would say, you know, I had early childhood experiences of making a decision to follow Jesus, I think it's really only as a more rational teenager that you kind of battle with some of the questions and challenges. You know, I was often the only Christian in the class or school I was in. Um, And then um, having opportunities to sort of serve God and see God at work around the world as a young person. And then again at university, needing to make decisions again. I studied theology at Oxford, as you did, Ruth. Of course, I'm much older than you. but um, Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, in my day there, it was heavily um, weighted towards high deal of scepticism about the difference between the sort of historical Jesus and the Jesus of really? faith, you know, massive scepticism about the, the the reliability of the Bible and the nature of, you know, the nature of the text of scripture. So again, rigorous kind of intellectual questions, but through it all, a thread of just profound personal encounter with Jesus, you know, coming to know him for myself having the opportunity to bring others to know him in all sorts of different situations, seeing God heal people. Um, And so undeniable evidence from my own life, as well as the more kind of intellectual journey that, that God is real. So that's a little bit of how, of how I came to faith. So do you think there was a distinct moment when you were like, this is, this is really my own faith now? Or was it, as you say, a kind of culmination of lots of different moments? Can you kind of look back on a time and say, I wasn't a Christian before, but now I am? Or is it a little bit like C.S. Lewis's analogy of being on the train and kind of not knowing where it all happened, but you know you're in? Yes. Um, so I think I probably did make a decision as a child, um, maybe eight or nine years old, Um but looking back and now with my adult knowledge, I would say, I would sort of quit. I'm probably over philosophizing it, overthinking it. But for me, I think I needed to make probably three key decisions. One as a child, one as a teenager. I definitely remember as a teenager at secondary school, just being absolutely surrounded by people who didn't believe and had loads of questions and 
you know, that being quite troubling and and going through a period of struggling with that. And then on the basis of evidence and also kind of personal decision, choosing to really follow Jesus. And then again at university, yeah. So a bit of a both and there. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. you mentioned there the kind of the sort of overt secularism in some senses of studying theology at Oxford University. Would you say just a little bit about your viva? Because <laughs> I know that was a really key moment, wasn't it, in your university yes. career? Oh my goodness. Yeah. So um for those who don't know, a viva is a sort of oral exam that usually after you've submitted a PhD, so like a 100,000 word research pro- project over three years as a postgrad, usually you have the viva exam, which is where you're kind of interrogated verbally. But it's very unusual for that to happen in undergraduate theology. So um after finals, you know, you take all your exams and then you just sort of feel free as a bird and you're kind of having a lovely summer. And I get a call from my tutor um, saying, um, don't worry, which is always a, a signal to panic, um, but but you're being called for, for a viva. It hasn't happened in theology undergrad for, you know, at least over 20 years. Um, and basically, you've got to come back to Oxford and appear before 14 dons at the university and just answer their questions. Don't worry, you'll be fine. <laughs> um, and it was obviously I did panic and it happened to be that I was getting married on the Saturday and the fiver was on the Friday. <laughs> So I was like, most brides are kind of thinking about, you know, their floral arrangement or seating plan or whatever. And I was kind of mugging up on um, on theology details. So I arrived and, you know, it's three sides of a square, the dons all in their kind of robes and everything. And then there's a chair on that fourth side of the square and you've got to sit in it and they just grill you. And basically, it it opened with, um, I had to do a bit of a Greek translation, which was fine. And then one of the New Testament professors um, absolutely laying into me. And he'd given me zero for, for the essays. I'd scored quite highly in the Greek portion of the paper, and he'd given me nothing for the essays. And the external examiners had picked up, this is an anomaly. And he'd refused to back down, and he just hated what I'd written. Um and his opening question was, you don't honestly mean to tell us that after three years of studying at this university, you actually believe Jesus wrote, said the words written in the Gospels. Now, at that point, um, I had read N.T. Wright, Jesus and the Victory of God, but Richard Borkham's research hadn't come out, which is incredible, you know, powerful evidence that the literal words recorded in the Gospels that Jesus said, you know, are very well evidenced because of all the names research. Um, I didn't know that, but had enough to kind of argue back and sort of ask him, well, on what basis are you assuming that he didn't? You're assuming a massive bias and prejudice. Um, and I think there is good evidence for, for, for my position. And it was, it was a, uh extremely confronting experience for a 21 year old with some of the world experts and you know that scripture 
when Jesus says, when you're brought before kings and rulers, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. I would say that was my experience because, I mean, you know, yeah, I don't quite, looking back, I, I, it's, it's also a bit of a blur because obviously it was a huge shock. As a result of that, I was, because um, I got a first class degree overall with the, with the grades, but I then had this very low grade and the external examiners were worried I wouldn't be able to do research because, you know, your transcript sort of follows you. But the grade was bumped up and it was all fine. But it was the beginning, I think, of um, an experience of being in a situation where you're exposed to people's hostility about faith, but also really profound intellectual questions. And I didn't know at the time, but, you know, I guess it began a journey for the last 25 years of at least one aspect of the work that I've been involved in in Christian apologetics, seeking to engage through hostile questions with with people who are honestly seeking and, and seek to um, provide at least some of the evidence that is available for the Christian faith. Yeah. <laughs> well, Not I what mean, you want to be doing the day huge... before your wedding, though. <laughs> no, I don't imagine it is. Very patient husband as well, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, he was, he was praying for me, definitely. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. You tell a story in Mary's voice actually about one of the first times that you start preaching. I think you yeah. were in Prague and you were quite yeah. young. Was that your first encounter of preaching and, and was that yes. something that then sort of continued? Yeah, so um, I had the opportunity as a teenager to do kind of summer programmes with a group called King's Kids, which was a sort of division of YWAM. And we would go and do performing arts for three or four weeks in the summer in different countries. And um, you remember I mentioned earlier that my dad and grandparents had escaped from behind the Iron Curtain to the UK. So uh, when the Berlin Wall was up, none of us, including my sister and I, so even the descendants of people who've escaped, you couldn't go to an Eastern Bloc country because you could be sort of repatriated. Um, but the summer after the Berlin Wall fell, there was a trip to Czechoslovakia, as it was then, Czech Republic now, and I was, you know, had the opportunity to go on this trip and it was really life changing because um, the, although I'd grown up in churches where, you know, there's a massive, wonderful socioeconomic mix, um, I hadn't seen models of women ministering up front or really sort of proclaiming, having a proclamation ministry. So we're in the Czech Republic and because the Berlin Wall had fallen, there was this unbelievable openness to the gospel and just to anything, any conversation about God, because it had all been repressed so much. So we're in Wenceslas Square, which is this beautiful square in Prague. And, you know, we're doing our kind of performing arts and there's thousands of people. And then one of the leaders turns to me and says, Amy, I think you should give a message now and at that to that point we as the younger people hadn't been really been doing that the leaders had sort of done it I was like so unprepared zero training obviously you're doing it cross-culturally as well um but this person just had 
this conviction that I should do it and like created that opportunity. So I got up and spoke and as I preached, just really felt and experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God and um, some amazing things happened, like the gift of other languages happened, all sorts of things happened. And people um, just wanted to respond to Jesus. And that, I think, again, just sowed a seed of possibility. You know, we don't, it's, it's, it's hard to envisage something you've never seen, particularly as a young person. And that, um, that opportunity that that amazing, just normal individual Christian gave me really did change my life. You know, first time I ever preached. I mean, who does that? Who lets a 15-year-old do that? Particularly <laughs> <laughs> a 15-year-old girl. But um, yeah, just such a, a, a sort of moment of grace in my life. Wow. Well, here's, here's a little segue. Another sort of young girl that was given yes. a huge moment that totally ch- changed not only her own life, but but all of our lives was, was Mary. Would you say just a little bit about why yeah. you wanted to write a book about Mary? Why she was is so important to you, Amy. Yeah. So um, it it began, it's uh, over a number of years, it's begun to strike me that um, the way the Christian faith and the gospel specifically position women um, in the narratives really goes against both the perception out there as to what women's role in religion is, but also often in the church. And um i began to to sort of realize this is actually really strong evidence for the christian faith that the three core elements if you like if you were to sort of distill what is the gospel you might have the incarnation the idea that god entered space time and history in the person of jesus of nazareth you'd have the crucifixion the idea of Jesus dying for our sins and then you'd have the resurrection Christ's triumph over sin and death and and all of that so the resurrection hope those would be the three core elements so the three core elements the creed you know we only know about all three of those because of female witnesses and it, it just struck me as extraordinary you know just on historical terms, if you were making something up, you would never position women that way in the narrative. But Mary is the primary witness to the incarnation of God. The women at the foot of the cross, including Mary, are the primary witnesses to the crucifixion and women were first at the empty tomb. So I had this sort of interest and then um, I'd been supporting somebody who was giving evidence in a a, a criminal trial about historic um, sexual abuse of a child and the the Crown Court case was happening over the course of a week in a particular city and it was unbelievably traumatic even just hearing it let alone um, you know trying to support someone who'd actually witnessed it and experienced it. So um, on one of the nights after a full day of evidence in court, I just felt pretty desperate and kind of staggered into the cathedral in this city. And um, it happened, it was the end of the day, it happened to be even someone, I kind of took the notice sheet, but I just really wanted to kind of sit there and just decompress. 
and um, the choir sang the Magnificat. So I sort of opened the sheet and see the Magnificat, by the way, is is Mary's proclamation and song. It's a source of extraordinary Christian ethical teaching and all of that. But it's also this prophetic kind of defiant hymn and it speaks of her hope of who Jesus is going to be and what he's going to do. So I'm sitting there listening to the choir sing and then this one line where, you know, it's in the King James, but he hath brought the mighty down from their thrones. And it sort of hit me between the eyes. You know, here we were, this very powerful man who'd abused children, someone with great influence and the hope that Mary had of who Jesus is is that he will deal with that sort of level of injustice. And it it started me on a journey of moving away from seeing Mary in this kind of posture of purity, the sort of demure woman who's still a virgin, even though she's got a tiny baby, or the woman who's sort of just stuck in this very static moment of her life shortly after giving birth, but silent. And I realized Mary had a voice and I've never listened to it, Um, uh, really. And then obviously within theology, you've got different traditions of the church. So you might have the more Catholic tradition and Protestants might be a bit suspicious of Mary in case we kind of give her too much praise and take attention (laughs) away from Jesus. So that was also, I guess, the tradition of the church that I'd been in. And I began to realize because of that, I failed to hear Mary's voice. And then I um, did more study and realized Mary's almost certainly the primary source for Luke's gospel. So not only is she this key witness, historic witness, not only is she proclaiming one of the greatest pieces of Christian ethical teaching and a vision of justice, she's also, you know, a source for one of the key gospels. And we've just ignored her. So what I had, so I then developed this sort of interest in, I guess, recentering the most central person other than Jesus in the Christmas story, at least, um, and beginning to think, well, what else have I missed? So it started with an Instagram series that I just did a little thought for every day of Advent. through the eyes of Mary and then through more research, um, the book, Mary's Voice, Advent Reflections to Contemplate the Coming of Christ came about. And the book has um, a daily reflection from the 1st of December to the 25th. It's got an introduction and conclusion as well, which goes more deeply into Mary's significance and role. But then 1st to 25th of December, a daily devotional, daily prayer, and then also um, a picture because I want it to, wanted it to be a kind of visual reflection as well as just, just intellectual. So that's how it came about. Brilliant. Well, it's really beautiful and it's such a great gift to give to someone over yeah, Advent as well. So. <laughs> but 
Amy, we're going to delve more into some of the things that you unearth in your book and, and some of the key elements about Mary, the character of Mary. But just as we finish this episode, why is Advent so important? And I yeah. guess, is it still relevant in 21st century where a lot of people wouldn't even know what Advent means other than yeah. a chance to open a calendar full of chocolate? Yes. <laughs> so the word Advent is a Latin word and it just means um, arriving or arrival and traditionally Christians have taken the few weeks before Christmas where we really celebrate the birth of Jesus and the doctrine of the incarnation have taken time to journey towards that day I guess reflecting on our very human need to to spend time to journey to actually prepare our hearts and so um I think Advent is more significant than ever. You know, as as a woman, the the kind of emotional labour of Christmas often falls on our shoulders. We're organising the social calendars of our loved ones. We're pulling together parties. We're buying gifts. We're perhaps trying to care for the needy and volunteer at food banks. You know, um, the stress in the build-up to Christmas is very real. And for for anyone who is seeking a kind of deeper spiritual engagement with the actual truth, the reason for the season, um, Advent is an opportunity to do that and to to do it not just as a one-shot wonder, but to daily journey and progress towards that Christmas day. And I just think it really sweetens the celebration of Christmas to, 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 to mark Advent. Yeah, so Christians all around the world have have done that and the advent calendar is is part of it but this is a way of doing it in a more kind of um i guess open-hearted devotional way and i suppose for someone who doesn't really know anything about god but obviously celebrates christmas because yeah why would you not want a big party at the end of the year what what would you say you know, how can we be using Advent to reach people who yeah. are perhaps open to these things, but maybe just not aware of, of what Advent is and, and what Christmas really is about? So I think Mary's a really interesting way in to this because a lot of people, certainly in Britain, have still, you know, their echoes of the nativity story. We may have played Mary or our child might have played Mary and Mary is in a nativity play often a mute figure. I mean, I once was Mary at nativities play in my school and I didn't say a word for the entire play. Um, and I think that is still in the culture a tiny resonance with people knowing who she is. Um, and so the opportunity to say, could we recenter a woman's perspective? on on Christmas and maybe the key woman of this story um and you know as I've spoken to people who don't have faith the vast majority have been really interested to, to hear that and to do that and to think wow I've never considered that including men as well you know obviously it's wonderful for for women but lots of men too that find that really moving we've all got a mother sister daughter we we all want to become more aware of of how women are often overlooked and not listened to in culture. So um, I think this is a really unique opportunity to do that and it is accessible for people who don't have faith as well. 
Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And as always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Do drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.